There's this 82, 83-year-old man named Everett, and he's rock-solid believer, and he's got these group of guys in the Bible study, and they do this thing called dropping your drawers, <laughs> meaning like keeping it all the way real. <laughs> and so I, I like it, you know. I like to be able to drop my drawers, and yeah. I'm cool when people drop theirs. Like, let's keep yeah. it real, man. Yeah. You know, all this, like, sugarcoating things and yeah. being, like, you can, you can be real and be loving and be nice. I mean, loving and authentic. Oh, yeah. You can do that, right? Yeah. But people settle for not doing that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I personally, I can't stand that. And there's, it's a, there's a certain amount of pride in that, too, because who wants to drop their drawers and, and be humbled, right? Yeah. And have people know their stuff. Yep. So, yeah. so that's what I would say. People can learn a lot from people in prison keeping it real. Man. How can- Bumper sticker faith, everyone. My name is Sam Key, and I'm uh, here with my man Louis Dooley. What's up? What's up, brother? How you doing? I'm doing well. All right, all right. I had a good week. I was uh, doing some house repairs. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, working with my neighbor. Uh, he treats me well, and um, we had some fun together. What kind of house? Tearing up carpet, oh, putting okay. in flooring, cleaning stuff up. We're gonna get a house ready to uh, to rent it out. So, uh, oh, your house? No, not my house. Oh, okay. One, one of his houses that he, oh, okay. that he bought. So that was fun. That kept me out of trouble, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we we know you need stuff to keep you out of trouble, boy, because uh, any yeah. minute now, you could be in the any clean. Any minute now. <laughs> <laughs> any second. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, I've had people, I've had new listeners. Okay, um, okay. Approach me or contact me and say, hey, we're new listeners to the to the podcast, and but who is this Lewis Dooley guy? And they mm-hmm. said, well, we probably need to go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes. And I was like, yeah, maybe you should. But mm-hmm. anyways, I thought it would be kind of cool to interview you, put you on the spot, mm-hmm. if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, for you to share a little bit, there'll be some uh, little, little bit of rehashing from things that you said before. But I also want to like go into new territory about what you're currently doing with your current ministry and dipping into um, some of those uh, activities that you do too. And I think think that would be, uh, I know that would be encouraging because it's Mm -hmm. always encouraging to hear from you about those things. So as we start, let's let's go back in time. (laughs) In the beginning. In the beginning, uh uh-oh. So let's uh, start from the beginning, uh, where you grew up and... um, uh, what kind of led to the uh, big events when you were uh, 19? All right. Well, first of all, that's not too far ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's only been like maybe 10 years. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, which is weird because um, the people here in St. Louis, and they think Missouri. Yeah, um, no. And this is East St. Louis. But then I started thinking there's a lot of states that are separated by bodies of water. And then one of the cities has the name of the other city. Yeah. So like East St. Louis 
in St. Louis, then you've got East Chicago, Indiana. Mm -hmm. It's like, you couldn't think of another name? <laughs> then you got Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. So it's just weird. So I'm from East St. Louis, Illinois. And in each of those instances, is one of the cities tend to be better and the other one more run down? Is that... I guess, you know... Um, it seems to be a pattern. It does seem to be a pattern. You're right. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to cast no shade on none of those other cities. But East St. Louis, I can speak about. Yeah. It's not good. In St. Louis, I would say, ain't that much better, you know, when it comes to crime and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But it is a major city in our country. But, yeah, I grew up there. And because it was a, a pretty rundown city by the time I was born, it used to be a flourishing and booming city mm -hmm. with stockyards and... And all kind of uh, industries and stuff like that. But that all changed over years, like before I was born. And then it became a very run-down city. A very um, crime-ridden mm -hmm. city. So I kind of just got got sucked into that, man. You know, um, unfortunately. And by the time I was 19, I found myself um, in a courtroom being convicted of attempted murder. And first-degree armed robbery and sentenced to life in 100 years. Mm -hmm. So that's what 19 looked like. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, what, how'd your life change at that moment then? <laughs> how did it change? Well, yeah. actually it changed in two ways, yeah. very drastically. One was I was locked up. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty drastic change as opposed to being free. Um, the other way it changed was I would say not even 24 hours um, from when I was cuffed up and thrown in jail that I ended up accepting Christ as my savior. And so that was something very new it was hearing the gospel for the very first time, mm -hmm. like literally. And I responded to it out of desperation and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I'm the type of person when I commit myself to something, I'm going to be committed to it. And when I was committing myself to this, there was no other people around. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like there'd be nobody to hold me accountable. But it just being the type of person I am, I decided if I'm, if I'm going to do this, then I'm mm -hmm. going to do this. At least, at least in my mind then it was if I find out that this thing is like bogus mm -hmm. that I'm not going to mess with it no more but if it shows itself to be true then that's what I'm going to be about mm -hmm. and that thing being Christianity mm -hmm. and at that point like you weren't you didn't foresee yourself getting out right no as far as I knew I, so that's a good question and just so I was incarcerated in the state of Missouri mm -hmm. because that's where my crimes that I got caught for happened mm -hmm. and in that state even though I had life with parole plus 100 years, technically there is a chance for me to get out. But having a, a life sentence really put my life in the hands of a parole board, mm -hmm. which meant they could choose to do what they want to do. And so I knew that there would be a chance. And then that, that 100 years in the state of Missouri, anything over 30 years is to be considered the same as a life. Mm -hmm. So essentially it was like having two life sentences. Mm -hmm. Life plus life. Mm -hmm. And they were saying life back then, this was 1994, was like 30 years. So if you do the math, 30 years mm -hmm. on one life, then another 30 years for the second life, that's 60. And I would turn 20 that year, so that'd make me 80. Yeah. So if everything worked out perfectly, <clears throat> I thought that by the time I was 80 or 80-ish, 80 mm -hmm. that's when I would get out. So mm -hmm. if that would have happened, then technically I would have gotten out. Yeah, but, but golly. After six years of being in prison, yeah. I really, honestly, like, would I, would, would, what, would I have gotten out to go to? Yeah, a bunch of old people like me, yeah, and mostly people that's dead that I mm -hmm. knew, 
and the, maybe the rest of them I wouldn't lost track of. So, wow. so far as I was concerned, my life was over yeah. looking at it from that way. So then how did you reframe your situation given uh, the new, your newfound faith? And I, I mean, I guess that's because you, you first heard the gospel in jail and then now you're in prison and it's not like you had ever seen what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, you know, out in the world and how they how they move and the things they're involved in, the activities and the way they love their families and all that. Mm-hmm. So then how did that translate into your prison setting Man, that's in, a, in what you look to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first thing was I learned that Christianity's base came from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to learn about Christ, if I was going to learn about God and just his character and his nature. Mm-hmm. And then what am I supposed to do as a follower? I need to get in that book. And I had this old King James Version mm-hmm. book, which wasn't the easiest thing to read. Um, the Gideons? The Gideon. Yeah. Good old Gideons. I still got that Bible too. Um, and so I started reading mm-hmm. it. Um, I read through the whole Bible in about 30 days. Wow. When I was, I got transferred from jail to a diagnostic center and they send every most states have them where you come, you get sentenced at the jail. They send you to a prison, mm-hmm. but it's not permanent to assess you and figure out which prison that you will go do your sentence. Mm-hmm. And that for me was about 30, 40 days. Mm-hmm. So I read through the whole entire Bible and I didn't retain much at all. But I, I found that the New Testament made a lot more sense than the Old Testament mm-hmm. because the stuff I ran into and, and, and not even the Gospels, it made sense. But not as much as the epistles mm-hmm. because it was so like, do this, do that. And that's why James became okay. my favorite book yeah. because it was like so direct, mm-hmm. like, don't do this, do this. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for like, what type of lifestyle mm-hmm. change do I need to have to follow God? Yeah. Because that's what I felt was the thing to do because I was a sinner mm-hmm. and I needed to stop being a sinner. But what do I replace my sin mm-hmm. with? So the New Testament, specifically epistles, really helped me understand that. And so um, so that was one. Number two, when I got to prison, man, man, like God's grace in my life has been overflowing since day one. Mm-hmm. And I mean that 100 percent because mm-hmm. I got to a prison where they had the worst of the worst in the whole state. Missouri's death row was there and they were in general population, yeah. the only state in the country that I know of. So I had a lot of crazy stuff around me, but man, I had a good group of about seven or eight men who were mostly in there for murder mm-hmm. and mostly never getting out and some with the death penalty. Yeah. And they were great disciplers. Mm-hmm. They were, I mean, those became my examples that I didn't have mm-hmm. like growing up in the church. Mm-hmm. And so they showed me how to walk as a man of faith in prison they showed me how to interact with other Christians in the prison. Mm-hmm. They showed me how to interact, more importantly, with people who are non-believers in the prison. Mm-hmm. And even in that subset, like people who have other faiths, mm-hmm. you know, to see them interact and see some Christians who weren't them, they'll fit their failures and learn from that. But then these other guys, their successes and then model my, my life mm-hmm. after that. We had a good chaplain that a lot of people didn't like because he was on a a TV thing where he was for the death penalty. You know that ain't going to go over well. A chaplain in the prison who's for the death penalty. <laughs> so everybody hated this guy. And he's an old free will Baptist guy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're friends on Facebook. 
<laughs> and uh, he gave me my first job, and I learned a lot from him. Wow. I mean, I actually used to preach every Sunday, and he was hellfire and brimstone, spitting and pounding on the pulpit. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of examples, um, other volunteers coming in. They had different temperaments and different styles. Mm-hmm. And so I got a chance to see this, and I would pick out the styles and things that resonated with me, mm-hmm. and that kind of shaped and molded my walk with Christ, mm-hmm. if you will. I just want people to imagine this because it's so... It's so, I guess, refreshing. It's like a control-alt-delete, you know, because especially people who grow up in the church have, and it's not necessarily, it's not a bad thing, but they have these models of what uh, the general Christian life looks like based on what they see Mm -hmm. their peers doing or their parents doing or their pastors doing, and they go to worship services, and they kind of involved in the warp and the woof of the church. Uh, but you didn't have that. And so from day one, you're like, how can I figure out what this being a Christian mm-hmm. thing is about? All I have is the word. Mm-hmm. All I have is the Bible. And so I better scour it, examine it, and try to see how to act. And then I'm drawn to books like James, like you said mm-hmm. in that, because it, it teaches me. So you didn't have you didn't have any of the negative church examples, and you didn't have any of the positive church examples. All you yeah. had was the Bible. But then also this other element of of Christian believers in one of the hardest environments trying to live out their faith. And those became your your mirrors, I guess. And mm-hmm. the people that you could look to or yeah. your windows. Yeah, and see. we and we lived out the word like when you talk about, you know, I guess you would call it church discipline or like admonishing your brother, like yeah. I was all a part of that, like on both ends, being admonished and mm-hmm. then learning how to Admonish people the wrong way mm-hmm. and learning how to admonish people the right way. And then while also, so all this is going on mm-hmm. at the same time when Muslims are in diff- different, I call them different Islamic denominations. Mm-hmm. So not just the Muslims, but like the nation of Islam, like Louis Farrakhan is a guy in charge of that and several other like factions or denominations mm-hmm. of Islam, like coming at us hard. You know what I mean? Either coming at us hard, putting us down because and when I say us, the people who weren't white who were Christians, hmm. they didn't they they intimidated them because they felt they were worshiping this blind hair, blue eyed devil's religion. Oh, wow. They came down on us, not solely for that reason, but more importantly to say, hey, you need to be with us because yeah. these people done oppressed us and done enslaved us and done all this stuff yeah. in the past. And that's why you need to come over here with us. Mm-hmm. And so um, Christians in general were looked down upon by most of these groups. And then you had um, the non-believers of anything, you know, that they didn't come down on us because we were Christians necessarily. But they came down on us because they just came out on everybody, even mm-hmm. amongst themselves. They were a bunch of heathens that would they'd eat their own. So, you know, they're going to yeah, eat us. Yeah. But yeah, but that that was difficult to navigate, especially when a lot of them would approach me with Bible verses. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot of the Bible from other religious groups mm-hmm. when they came at me negatively. Mm-hmm. Give me something to eat. The Bible says, yeah. "When you was hungry, you fed me." Yeah. So they hit me with that verse. Yeah. And like, and look, Jesus said this. Yeah. Like, golly, and I, wow. you know, I'm like. He, I'm looking at my Bible. I'm like, yeah, it is red letters, right? <laughs> it is Jesus, and it does say that. So, like, man, if, if so, it was like if I don't give them something to eat, then I'm sinning because I'm going against what Jesus said. Yeah. So then, after like not having any commissary, 
and talking to some other brothers, some of these guys that were examples, you know, and they said, look, you need to figure out your own way how to deal with that. So they didn't give me a, like advice on how to fix it. And then God pouring his grace out on me just gave me the idea like, okay, like feed them, but don't just feed them physical food, feed them spiritual mm. food. So I was like, okay. So when the guy would come, I say, you know what? You're right. Let's sit down here and get in the word for about an hour and I'll do better than give you a couple of soups. I'll fix you a meal. Yeah. And so I would say if that happened 20 times, 18 of them said no thanks and yeah. kicked rocks. But the other two took me up on it and there wasn't like any more story behind it. But yeah. it, it essentially stopped those guys from coming ask me for my commissary. So that, <laughs> that was good for me because I didn't want to give all my goods away. So then how important was Set Free Ministries <clears throat> to you and Emmaus? And tell us about those. Yeah, well, set so just to get an understanding. So, Set Free Ministries is a nonprofit organization, and this particular because there's Set Frees all over the country. Okay, this one was Missouri. So, mm -hmm. Set Free Ministries in Missouri. All of these other Set Frees, and, and some ministries name themselves something different, but they're connected to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. So, picture that as a hub, like a, a wheel, mm -hmm. the center, and then all the spokes. So there'd be like 50 spokes. Okay. You know, and that would be like a set free Missouri of a set free in California. Um, and then other ministries would be named something different, mm -hmm. but they all connected to Emmaus. Emmaus has a Bible college in mm -hmm. Dubuque, Iowa. And after they started the Bible college sometime out, I don't know what came first, the correspondence school or the Bible college. I can't remember, but, but they have a Bible college that people can go to. Mm -hmm. And then they have a correspondence school. And that's not accredited, but it's these Bible courses that mm -hmm. a lot of these faithful men, like that were preachers and teachers, they, you know, it's, they're basically like commentaries. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Different topics. And mm -hmm. then there's basically a book for every, every Bible, mm -hmm. a course for every Bible book. And so um, a guy named Randy Gruber in St. Louis, who was the one running Set Free Missouri, he would use those courses to give away free to guys in prison. Okay. And so I was one of those guys. Okay. And so that's that was essential with helping me understand the word of God. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, any any Bible course or any church you go to is gonna be their interpretation mm -hmm. of what the word of God says, yeah. right? And that's why we got all these different denominations, right? Mm -hmm. And so um Emmaus comes from a brethren, Plymouth brethren background. And so when people talk about they were raised in this type of church, um, I guess I would say I was kind of raised in a Plymouth Brethren church. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of have this idea of they call their churches like assemblies. They don't mm -hmm. call them churches. And so we kind of had an assembly in prison that Randy kind of started mm -hmm. where every week they'd have the two, like the first portion of service is called breaking the bread. Mm -hmm. And so we do communion and that, that in that time a guy could lead us in a song or sing a solo. Mm -hmm. He could um, expound on a Bible verse that the Lord had been really showing them that week. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a free space where we could stand up and give a testimony of what God is doing. And then after that part, then the second part would be uh, more of like what a church service looked yeah. like, you know, maybe some music and some songs that were led by a person or a group of people. And then there'd be like a, a teaching or a message part. And so that's kind of, but I went to other church services in there that was just like a church service out here. We mm -hmm. do some singing, some praying, some preaching, mm -hmm. some singing, some praying, and it's over. It seems like the that brother mm -hmm. model really fit the prison setting well. Yeah, I mean, each each, each of them fit the set, the setting well. I would say that it was it was a lot different than the regular church mm -hmm. people that came in. And so guys in prison who had been to churches on the street 
they kind of looked at that thing like okay. it was an alien. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because it was something different. Yeah. And so it wasn't like it was bad, mm-hmm. you know. And and I, I a lot of symbolism and the, they call it the breaking of bread. Mm-hmm. Like the first part, a lot of symbolism because there'd be a loaf of bread and you'd actually like tear mm-hmm. a piece of bread off, you know. And I love that that symbolism mm-hmm. and that like Jesus' body being broken and being yeah. torn, right? So it it kind of for me ushers in this this solemnness in my heart um, to really take me back and you know not feel what Christ felt, but, but somewhat be able to like visualize it in my mm-hmm. mind and, and feel some, some pain in me because I'm, I'm, I'm hurt because what Christ did for mm-hmm. me, you know, and we just had a little cup of juice like everybody else mm-hmm. did. Um, but the, but the getting to share a testimony or to get to share a word that yeah. the Lord may have showed you, I love the freedom in that, yeah. man, you yeah. know, like, and, and other church services we had that wasn't like that. A lot of those guys would give us, us liberty to do that in a church service. Okay. So like like say a couple guys come in from the outside and one guy would kind of be like the the guy who would like lead the service, another guy would be the preacher. So the guy leading the service, okay. we come in and he'd um you know, either open us in prayer or pick somebody, mm-hmm. ask somebody want to open us in prayer, so we pray. And after that it would be a time of hey, does anybody have a testimony you got to sh- want to share? You got like two minutes. And if you go past that, we're going to be telling you, hey, okay, <laughs> brother, it's time to stop. You know, and uh, not every time, every time, I say 90% of the time, at least one guy, sometimes maybe as many as two or three. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a week to week thing. You know, or if mm-hmm. it's something you've been praying about for a long time, then maybe you give a, re- you know, testimony mm-hmm. of something God has done. And man, that's so encouraging. That's really cool. Really so encouraging. encouraging, man. And then. After that, the preacher would come up and preach, and and pretty much almost every time that I can remember, there was an altar call. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like a sit in your seat altar call. Mm-hmm. I mean a come up front and get on your knees and pray. And then it was always open for other people if you didn't feel led to come pray yourself. But I'd be sitting there and I see one of my brothers, and it's like, man, I didn't even know nothing was going on in his life. You mm-hmm. know, I'd go up there and put my you know hand on his shoulder and I pray with mm-hmm. him and pray for yeah. him. You know, and I, I've that's happened to me, and I've mm-hmm. done that. So that's how I learned how to do church on the inside. And to me, it's something powerful Such that takes place. Community. Yeah. So, wow. So, uh, eventually, after 13 years or so, you went up for parole, and the parole board just out of nowhere and miraculously said, "Okay, in two years, you're going to be released." Yeah, they um, that's that's right. Um, at 13 years, I went to the interview. They told me I get an answer in six weeks. Six weeks came by, and then another guy, as a caseworker in the prison, read off a piece of paper of their judgment, which was I get to go home in two and a half more years. So they transferred me to a lower level prison because even though I was around these other dangerous guys, 13 years now I'll be a custody risk yeah. since my custody level dropped and I could sue the state if one of those guys did something mm-hmm. to me. So they shipped me to a lower level prison where I was for two and a half years and it was true. They let me out. Wow. And at, during those two and a half years, did you ever anticipate, um, well, what did you think you'd do once you got out? But then did you ever anticipate that you would come back as like a prison chaplain or pastor and do ministry? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I always joked around with people. It was like tongue in cheek. Um, when I get out, I'm going to get two jobs and they're going to be in my favorite two places, McDonald's in the daytime and Burger King <laughs> at night. And I said that jokingly, but I was totally okay with yeah. doing that because yeah. I looked at it like 
I don't have much of an education of any. I got a high school diploma mm-hmm. barely, and that's pretty much the extent of it. I mean, I do have a. A de- I had a decent amount of Bible knowledge just yeah. from spending that many years in yeah, the scripture. Yeah, you took all those, those courses, yep, those yep. advanced courses. Yeah, so I had that, which was great for me yeah. to learn and, how to and, walk with Christ. And I've seen and, some of those, too, and they're not, they're good. They're meaty. Yeah. They really get you into the yeah, text some of them and get are you deep. thinking about the issues, and, yep. they're, and they're graded, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. those are fantastic. Yeah, but. so I didn't have a direction, per se, of like a vocation. Mm-hmm. Like when I, I'm, I when I go in now, I ask people, what do you want to do when I get out? Everybody wants to own their own business. Mm-hmm. I never once really thought about owning my own business. I wanted to do two things. I wanted to get a good job, making a good money, and I wanted to be very generous mm-hmm. with that money, you know, and really like find some things that I feel passionate about and like be a big supporter of that. Mm-hmm. That was the only two things on my mind. So uh, when I got out, I started applying for jobs. Um, I had learned I was out a couple months in East St. Louis before I got married and moved up to the Chicago area. And during those few months, Randy had set free. He had a, a small landscape business. So he gave me a job, which was great because I didn't have nothing to do. Okay. And so maybe after the first couple of weeks of being out, I got on this mowing crew. So it was just cutting grass and trimming okay. with a weed eater and blowing the debris off the driveways and porches and stuff. And so I had to learn how to do that. I mean, I know how to cut grass, but not at a, a not well to where it looked nice and neat. Yeah, where would you have learned? <laughs> yeah, so I learned from being on that mowing crew with yeah. a 16-year-old who was the chief and then a 20-year-old who, like, drove because the other guy didn't have a license. And it was great being with them. And they were one was a 16 year old was a solid Christian. The other guy was kind of wow. uh, ho hum. But getting a chance to like witness to them and learn about them was great. Mm-hmm. Being outside, having freedom and cutting grass, which I can't stand the smell of fresh cut grass. Um, and then making a paycheck, you mm-hmm. know, so that was good. So I learned that. Then I got married, moved up to the Chicago area. Couldn't find a job yeah. for nothing, man. And yeah. then, how, how how hard was it for you to find a job? That was. I mean, it question. took. It, I think it took a miracle of God because yeah. I I applied for jobs. I was there was no job I was overqualified for, <laughs> but I applied for <laughs> jobs that like would have been a, like I applied to McDonald's yeah. Burger King, yeah. so anybody can do that as mm-hmm. long as you can think. Mm-hmm. Apply for those, no. Mostly it was corporate policy because people were felonies. It was so it mm-hmm. wasn't like the manager could give me a chance. It's like our corporate says no. Yeah. And then I applied for jobs I was well underqualified for because it's like, hey, if I can get to meet the person, I can sell them on me. Mm-hmm. I tell them the truth, mm-hmm. but I would be able to say, look, man, I'll do whatever it takes to earn your trust, and I'll work hard and I'll learn quick. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance at nothing, wow. and it just took I. Um, went to a prison ministry meeting at a, a local mega church <laughs> where we are, mm-hmm. and the guy that was speaking that day started a company to hire people with felonies. Okay, so I met him on a Saturday, and by that following Friday, I was in the plant roasting coffee. Wow, just like that. So that was to me that was a miracle. Yeah, like I could have wow. went any other week, and he wasn't speaking. Or he could have spoke yeah, the week yeah. before, and then I missed out. Uh, but that's how God had it lined up for me. So he gave you and other felons a chance, and then yeah, yep. There was only like one, two other employees yeah. at the time because it was really small. Can we talk about that company? Yeah, I have a bean. Yeah, yeah definitely, I have a bean in Wheaton, Illinois. Yeah, so the owner Pete Leonard, really good friend of mine. I learned a ton from that guy working there about maybe a year and a half. Yeah. 
we're still really good friends. I go in there. Used to go to the staff meetings up until before the pandemic. Wow. Every Wednesday, wow. I'd be there at 8 o'clock wow. at the staff meeting six, seven years after I wasn't working there anymore. Yeah. Just because I'm, I'm going to promote the company, you know, till something crazy happens to it or till the day I die. Yeah. So then what happened after that and how did you get into uh, your own ministry? Somehow? Well, while I was working there, Randy um, would go to a prison conference at Emmaus in Dubuque mm-hmm. every two years. And so those coordinators, uh, those spokes, those mm-hmm. ministry leaders, those that could make it would come there every two years and they'd have just like a two and a half, three day like conference mm-hmm. where they would talk about best practices, things that people are doing that's new, that's working in their state because states run differently. And so I was invited to come share my testimony. Okay. So I went there. I was super excited to meet some men that worked for Emmaus mm-hmm. that I knew their names and saw them on video, but I never like met them in person. Wow. So I got a chance to meet those guys. Um, one of them is still there. His name is Al Stoltz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually the prison co- coordinator guy for Emmaus Correspondent School. Because mm-hmm. this correspondent school isn't just for prison. Like homeschool use these yeah. courses. Yeah. They can be used for anyone, yeah. but there's people in all these states that mm-hmm. specifically use them in jails and mm-hmm. prisons. And so I read a statistic mm-hmm. on their website this morning, and I was shocked by it. But it was something like... They sent out, probably get these numbers slightly wrong, but they sent out uh, in like the year 2016, 32,000 of those uh, courses, 32,000, and they received back, completed 28,000 of them. That's, that's, that's very accurate. Like the... Uh, some in the 80s percent yeah, always. Yeah, the, the percentage of people yeah. actually following through and mm. doing their courses. Extremely high. Extremely high. Extremely high. I haven't high. seen that anywhere with anything. Yeah, I mean, it's the greatest investment a person can use yeah. for their money yeah. because you know you got a great chance of getting a return on your investment. Yeah. And it's not a monetary return. I would say it's a heavenly return, if you will. Mm. But yeah, so I shared my testimony there and it was afterwards, Randy, and then another guy um, who was just a volunteer at Emmaus. One of them, I think it was the other guy, Dale. Dale said, man, have you ever thought about working for Set Free? You know, me in Missouri with Randy. And I said, well, I'm on parole till, I, you know, till 2079, so I can't. Hmm. And this was 2000, I think, 11? Mm-hmm. 2012. And so Randy was like, well, we wouldn't care that you're on parole. I was like, oh, really? Hmm. You know, I thought because I was on parole and then working for the prison ministry with him and him having direct contact with people in prison that that be prohibited mm-hmm. from the prison yeah. standpoint or yeah. from, from whoever's standpoint. Yeah. He said, no, nah, from his standpoint, it wouldn't be. And I was like, oh, I was hmm. like, all right. So then, you know, I talked to Julie, my wife, about it. And, you know, it really was not a conversation like, let's pray about it. Or what do you think? It was like, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was because probably... This was about three years that I had been out, mm-hmm. probably about five or six years before I got out. So back before I even knew I was getting out, Randy pulled me in the office in prison or out of the office in prison and said, hey, you know, what do you think about working for Set Free when you get out of here? And I was like, <laughs> you know, I wow. like I took it almost as a blessing and a slap in the face. Yeah. The blessing was like, man, Randy was like, want to work with me? Yeah. The slap in the face was like, man, I ain't going to be, yeah, I ain't yeah, never getting out. I'm going to be an old man. Yeah. I ain't going to want to work it when I'm 80 some years old. Yeah. So I just was like, hey, yeah, Randy, if, if, if things ever worked out that way, yeah, I'd love to. Well, now you fast forward. Mm-hmm. And now I'm telling him yes. Mm-hmm. 
And then he was like, okay, the first thing you need to do is, this is the exact words, you need to raise a good base of support. And I was like, hmm, (laughs) that means there ain't no paycheck. Yeah. You know, and the job I'm working with coffee, I get a paycheck. Yeah. So I took a chance. I'm a, I'm a risk taker, man. Yeah. And I said, okay. I I told Pete. I put in my. I said, well, how many ever weeks you need me to stay here until you can replace me? I'll do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm putting my notice in, and I'm gonna go do this. And he, as much as he loved me, and as much as he wanted me to work for him, mm-hmm. you know, and with him, you know, he saw this as something that would greatly benefit me and be a benefit to mm-hmm. others. So he was like, yeah, like we'll quickly get somebody in there to do that. Don't even worry wow. about it. Um, wow. And he, you know, he he was pr- he was sad, but he was like excited for me yeah. for this to be the next step. And so I started working for Set Free Ministries, and I became the regional director for the state of Illinois because at that time, Set Free Missouri was doing all the jails and prisons in Missouri, Illinois, North and South Dakota, and Hawaii. Wow! And that was because people in those states either died and nobody picked the work up, or they got so old they couldn't do it anymore. Okay. And since Randy has guys in max prisons doing the work, he got plenty of workers. Mm -hmm. So he could take on a bigger load of those Mm -hmm. 28,000 courses getting sent back. Mm -hmm. They had to be graded. Mm -hmm. And then then people write um, answers to essay questions. Mm -hmm. And then we respond back. And sometimes you may write two or three sentences or a paragraph in response. So it takes time. And guys in prison, that's all they got. (laughs) It's time. (laughs) So so it works out well. Wow. So then you're um, the regional director. Is that what you said? I was a regional director for Set Free Ministries, yep. So then how did uh, Flamon House come come along? Yeah, that was um, that's interesting, too. So a friend of mine named Ben, he and I were at a a conference at Wheaton College. And it was like the CMCA, Correctional Ministries. And Chaplains Association, mm-hmm. I think it stands for. And there was a guy that was speaking. I think it was their last speaker. His name was Lenny Spitali, which incidentally, Lenny Spitali had been in prison, and he wrote an Emmaus course wow. called Walking the Walk. Okay. <laughs> so it's like wow. I knew that, and so it's like I, I, you know, I was there to hear everybody, yeah, but yeah. I really wanted to hear him. Yeah. And he preached out a book of Philemon. Wow. And while we were sitting there. Wow. While I was sitting there, I was thinking about all the men that I had been trying to help getting out of prison. Because mm-hmm. when I first started working with Set Free, I couldn't, no prisoner jail would let me inside. Mm-hmm. None. So I was like, well, I'm, if I'm going to do prison ministry, and if I got to raise a base of support, meaning I got to tell people what I do and hope that the Lord leads them to donate, mm-hmm. I need to be doing something. So I thought, well, I can't get in. But there, I started learning how big the need was for when people get out. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to live? Where are they going to get clothes? Yeah. Where are they going to get food? Where are they going to get jobs? Yeah. So I'm a networker. Yeah. I love the people. I love the network. So I built a pretty big network um, of companies, individuals, organizations that can provide mm-hmm. these services. All I can provide is like discipleship. Mm-hmm. You know, so praying for them, getting in the Word with them, teaching them how to get in the Word, mm-hmm. holding them accountable. Sometimes, depending on where they are, pick them up and take them to mm-hmm. an appointment or something. But for the most part, that's all I can do. And so um, after listening to him, it, w- it it made all the sense in the world that we needed to have a house. Because if these people could be in one area, then it makes things easier. Because mm-hmm. you got guys geographically all over the place. I'm running around driving 40,000 miles a year, mm-hmm. reaching out to these people. Because over the phone, we got to be face to face, you know. And... Um, 
So we started a nonprofit, me and my friend Ben, called Philemon House to house men coming out of prison. Mm-hmm. And so we got that, you know, we filed for it. For it. We um, asked people that we knew that would be good for different positions on the board. He was the president, I was vice mm-hmm. president. And then we started investigating other organizations that do it. Mm-hmm. So everywhere in our area, there's probably four or five places at the time that were doing this. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to go around and meet the people running it, um, talk to some of the people that live there, look at their rules, ask them what the losses mm-hmm. have been, like find out we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And so we went around and talked to all these organizations and then we started writing out our guidelines and rules and so on and so forth. And then we, we even found a couple to live in the house to, to manage it. Yeah. They would get paid to do that. And uh, it's like, wow, that, I figured that'd be an act of God to find. Mm-hmm. We found it rather quickly, some people who already were doing it just in their own home mm-hmm. with no extra support. And they were, you know, they weren't struggling, but they weren't doing as well as they could have been. So to be able to get them and help be support them, things would go really, really well. And so the next step is we got to get a place. Mm-hmm. Well, we were never able to get a place. So after about a couple years of me praying and going nuts trying to figure this thing out and getting nowhere, I told Ben, um, I'm out. Hmm. I said, man, I hate to hate to drop this on you. And I mean, if you want to be out, like be out too. Mm-hmm. You know, don't feel like you got to keep going, but I can't do it no more. I can't. It was messing with my mind that, that I felt like God put this on my heart to do. But then he, I, mean, I needed him to continue to open doors, and he was. But we got to this one, mm-hmm. nothing would open. So I just let it go, and he kept the thing going. Wow. So that's how Philemon House was started. Wow. So eventually, though, you, you've you been able to go back into prisons to do ministry. Yeah, so the doors started to open. Um, in Missouri first, they wanted me, the warden asked me to mm-hmm. come in. Um, and so I went in several prisons, and that turned into me becoming a full-time volunteer. So, I mean, if I lived in Missouri, I could go I could, I could, could go in there every day, yeah. seven days a week. Yeah. I can go get keys. I, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I'm talking yeah. to places that I did time at yeah. <laughs> where there's hundreds of people wow. that I know. So that's a, that's a miraculous thing of God. And so I was once a month I would drive and do mm-hmm. stuff like that because we have an office in one prison. So I go open the office up. And then Illinois um, prisons still to date aren't open for me. However, Cook County Jail opened up for me okay. about five or six years yeah. ago. So start going in there and put, planting Bible studies in the maximum security units. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need volunteers for that. So the Lord gave me, you know, a handful of volunteers. And then shortly after, the couple juvenile prisons in the suburbs where I live, they opened up. Mm-hmm. So start going in there and doing like youth groups with them. So it, it tra- I transitioned from the discipleship of people that get out to discipling people who are in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was much easier. Um, there was much, there's much more success. Mm-hmm. I would say if there's a hundred guys I discipled over the years getting out, I can't think of one success, one success mm-hmm. story. I can think of a couple guys that stayed out, Yeah, but all the rest, if it's a hundred, that means 98 went back or didn't go back, but they're back not living a Christ-like life. Wow. That's disheartening, yeah, man. Is. You know, it's very disheartening. But um, inside, I get a chance to see fruit. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you see that inside, and when they get out, it's yeah. business as usual. So it's not disheartening, although that's probably going to happen to these people too. I just don't see it. But so. with that knowledge, that high percentage knowledge of what happens, what you're tempted to do once you get out, 
I'm sure that affects the way that you share with and direct the people uh, inside. Yeah, right? you know, I, I realized um, after, you know, a scripture came to me, you know, I can't, I'm not feel bad. I still remember where this is at, but um, Paul is talking about um, planting seeds. You know, he says, I plant Apollo waters and God okay. gives the increase. Yeah. And so then I really started thinking, you know what, man, that's that's what God is calling us to do. Plant seeds, water seeds that have our baby seeds we've planted or mm-hmm. seeds other people have planted. And we got to let God get an increase. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit to convict a person's heart of sin and to yeah. keep convicting them of sin, even yeah. if they've come to Christ. So I'm all, I've always been leery of organizations or individuals that talk about. You know, I saved these people or we got this many people saved. Man, you don't know who got saved. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, person can say anything out their mouth and they can live a good moral life. But that don't mean they saved. Mm-hmm. So I really stopped focusing on that. And when people ask me, man, do a lot of people get I bet a lot of people get saved when you go in. I said, man, I honestly have no idea, yeah. you know. And it's difficult not to think about that because we have an event every year. Mm-hmm. And some people like numbers and statistics. You know, in some organizations you go to, and as we had 2,000 people hear the gospel and 300 people got yeah. saved, and we had yeah. 55 baptisms. You know what, man? I, I, I baptize a person, but I'm not keeping track of the numbers. Numbers mm-hmm. numbers don't do nothing for mm-hmm. me. Numbers give can give people who care about them a false sense of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not getting caught up in it that. It seems like uh, in the Old Testament in particular, God didn't like when... Uh, People took censuses and counted yeah. people, and uh, yeah, that le- leads to all kinds of uh, bad things. Yeah, and a lot of times it can be, I know organizations, and this happened to me a few times where, like, I'm, I've been working with these guys for six months, and here comes a guy behind me that just goes in, and the next week I go in, I hear, these guys, <laughs> I just got baptized, and I got <laughs> saved, <laughs> and I'm like... I'm like, praise the Lord. You know, yeah. I got to bite my tongue. I got to <laughs> swallow my pride. And it's like, really? <laughs> like, after all the stuff we talked about, you, he prayed this prayer with me. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> like, just because you prayed that prayer, you got saved. You As much as we talked about the gospel and salvation, yeah. you wouldn't have said you were saved. But it's that it's that experience, right? Yeah. And it's that charismatic person that comes in that that does this call to action or whatever. And then they talk about baptism. And, and then I say, oh, Rod, you got baptized. What does that mean? They either don't know or what they tell me ain't what baptism means. So then I get mad. I'm like, I want to fight this dude. For real. Because they coming in here, they undoing yeah. Yeah. the work that I know is the gospel. And that's what you do. That's what you get when you get into mm-hmm. prison jail ministry. Because you got a lot of phonies. Mm-hmm. Some intentional phonies and some that don't know. That they have a false gospel. Mm-hmm. And they they can undo the work of the gospel. Yeah. And that makes me mad. I, mean, I got to check myself. Yeah. No, rightfully so. So kind of wrapping up here, what do you think we could, what, what do you think everyone could learn from the incarcerated or the formerly incarcerated? Oh, man. As it relates to our faith. So so I, I, one thing that just popped in my mind, I'm not even going to try to think about nothing else. Keeping it real. Okay. Keeping it real, man, like guys in prison, like you learn in prison to keep it real Mm -hmm. because people don't like liars, even though people lie. People don't like phonies, even though people are phony. Like it's okay to do that to others, but it's not okay when it's done to you. Right. It's Mm -hmm. hypocritical. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I can lie to you all day, but don't lie to me. Mm-hmm. So people in prison develop, uh, if you're there for any length of time, you develop a, a discernment, if you will, not a necessarily a spiritual discernment, yeah. but just a way to be able to see through BS. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. yeah, and so because these guys have a tendency to be raw mm-hmm. and keep it real, when I got out and I encountered people, and it's not just a prison jail thing, I think it's partially a culture thing, and I think it's a demographic thing. Mm-hmm. In other words, most white people I'm around are nice. Mm-hmm. Remember we did, if you don't know what nice <laughs> is, go back and watch our episode on being nice. Yeah. They being nice, they yeah. ain't telling you what they really yeah. believe or really think. Yeah. That's some BS, man. Yeah. So you have a pretty big BS detector. Well, I don't know if it's a detector, but I, I can definitely detect when somebody ain't keeping it real. Yeah. You know, if they're just smiling and being nice. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, one thing I always mess with people when a guy says, oh, man, we should get together sometime. Mm-hmm. I say, look, let me stop you right there. I'm the guy that when somebody tells me that or, I, you know, I want you to come over for dinner sometime. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy I'm coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to reach out to you. So I'm going to give you a pass right now. You can take that back and we act like this never happened before. And I put them on the spot. And every time I've done it, people are like, oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I don't know if they were or they weren't, but I don't want to tolerate it. Yeah. So it's difficult for me not to call it out mm-hmm. when I think I hear it or see it. I try not to be rude about it, but I just try to keep it real and say, hey, man, like if you're just being nice, like that's cool mm-hmm. that you're being nice. You ain't got to do that with me, man. You know, and it's I learned in Jacksonville this past week, there's this 82, 83-year-old man named Everett, and he's rock-solid believer, and he's got these group of guys in the Bible study, and they do this thing called dropping your drawers, <laughs> meaning like keeping it all the way real. <laughs> and so I, I like it, you know. I like to be able to drop my drawers, and yeah. I'm cool when people drop theirs. Like, let's keep yeah. it real, man. Yeah. You know, all this, like, sugar-coating things and yeah. being, like, you can you can be real and be loving and be nice. I mean, loving and authentic. You can do that, right? But people settle for not doing that. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I personally, I can't stand that. There's a certain amount of pride in that, too, because who wants to drop their drawers and and be humbled, right? Yeah. And have people know their stuff. So So that's what I would say. People can learn a lot from people in prison, keeping it real, man. How can, last thing, how can we, what are a couple ways or one way we can apply that? I like the I like the drop their drawer sense, but if you if you find yourself not keeping it real or being kind of this fake nice, not sharing, um, how can we motivate people to keep it real? Like one little step this week. Um. So this is what I do. Yeah. When I want people to keep it real with me, I go first. Okay. And that's what I call it going first. Yeah. And so they may look differently pertaining to whatever conversation you're in or whatever you're talking Mm -hmm. about but if it's me asking a person about something before I ask them I'll preface it by sharing my experience in that thing so I share first and I keep it real first and I put I put my I drop my drawers first right if I drop mine first that person gonna feel more comfortable dropping theirs Mm -hmm. versus me just wanting them to do theirs first Mm -hmm. because it's a concept that I want to implement not them so why should I put it on Mm -hmm. them to do it before I do it yeah so if I want to keep it real, I got to keep it real first. And that means talking about the hard and difficult things. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, hey, man, I heard so-and-so, so-and-so on the news talking about abortion. What do you think? Mm-hmm. 
person might really not want to tell you what they think, mm-hmm. and they'll say, "Man, you know what? I don't even like pay attention much of that stuff." Mm-hmm. Man, that's bull crap. This you got a ton <laughs> that you want that you want to talk about, but yeah. you don't know if it's safe. Yeah. So you can say, "Man, I was watching blah blah blah," and man, this is what I think. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah. Now, right? If you keep it real, it's not to say they will do it, but at least now you've made it a safe environment because they feel like, "Man, you trust me enough." To share what you think about it. Wow, like that matters, right? When you extend a person trust first, it makes them feel like it's safe for them to, you know, trust you as well. So keeping it real is one of the it's one of the hearts of the whole Bible. Not just giving God lip service, not just giving other people lip service. I remember the story in Acts, was it Acts five with Ananias and Sapphira, which you know, they gave a little bit of their money, but uh, they kind of, they kind of, they weren't keeping it real, and they kind of pretended like they were more than what they really were, and mm-hmm. and God didn't like that. No, He ain't like even that though they all. did something good, even though they were on the outside, they were nice, you know, mm-hmm. going through the motions, and uh, they gone. <laughs> they gone, man, with so, the quickness. So thanks for sharing. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for sharing with people, and um, if you have any questions, any comments. Anything you want to offer, you can uh, email us at bumperstickerfaith at gmail.com. We have a website, bumperstickerfaith.com, and you can leave comments um, there or on our YouTube channel or on Apple Podcasts, and we're on Spotify. And I just saw another uh, podcasting, what's it called? I don't know, but there's we're on a bunch of different podcasting platforms. Oh, we are? Uh, yeah. How we get on several. there? You put us on there? And some picked us up. What was this one that came through? I'd have to look at my phone to see. Wow. Okay, but, that's interesting. Uh, if you need a platform, chances chances are uh, that we're there. So uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us and listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. And go, don't go stepping in no BS. That's right, y'all. Peace. <laughs>